Hey Brian, hey listeners, welcome to the 14th episode of The Goods, a film podcast. Hey Dan. Today we're going to be talking about 12 Monkeys, the 1995 sci-fi film by Terry Gilliam. Is that how you say it or is it Gilliam? I think it's Gilliam. Okay, that's what I thought too. It's weird, you see all these names and all these words written out and then you realize that there's a lot of them that you never actually say out loud until you try to say them out loud and then you realize you don't know how to say it. Definitely. Anyways, last week we talked about a holiday special. Um, it is Christmas season, I would say. We're just over two weeks away from Christmas. I was not able to come up with a, a holiday movie I was sufficiently excited to share with you, so I instead went the route of a very different movie. Oh, but I would argue that it is a Christmas film, oh. Dan, because much of it unfolds in December 1996. Interesting. So are we now saying that anything that happens in December is Christmas-themed? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven happened in the bleak December, so I'm counting it. Oh, a Christmas poem. I didn't even think of that. I do think that it is a timely movie, though. I would even go so far as to say that 12 Monkeys, the 1995 film, is the ultimate movie about 2020. I'm going to elaborate on that in a bit. But first, welcome you, welcome listeners. Have you had a good week, Brian? Yeah, pretty good. Ups and downs. But I'm glad to be doing this again. And if you've been watching our feed, the Pee Wee episode popped up. Uh, definitely check that one out. That was a good time. Yeah, we had a lot of fun fun last week, and I think we're going to have some Different kind of fun this week. So, shall we dive into the movie? Please. So, 12 Monkeys is based off of a short French film from 1962, I believe called La Jetie. Again, not sure how to say it. I haven't seen it. I've heard that plot-wise it's pretty similar. Thematically, it's very different. But I'd be interested to see that at some point, having seen 12 Monkeys now. Yeah, I'm really curious about it. And now that you say now, have you seen 12 Monkeys before? So I saw it actually just a couple weeks ago, and I revisited it to, to make my notes. I've, I've only saw, seen it recently for the first time. It was one that was one of my many holes in uh, sci-fi and horror. It's, it's mostly sci-fi. It's got a little bit of horror in it, I would say. This was my first time as well. So this movie was directed by Gilliam, as we mentioned, and he's actually a really interesting character. He is a former member of the Monty Python comedy troupe. And after Monty Python broke up in the early 80s, he basically launched this new career as a, a screenwriter and then a director of these sort of bleak sci-fi anti-modern life films that have almost universally gone on to become cult favorites. Yeah, he's got Brazil and Time Bandits, which is the only one I've seen previously, though this movie has definitely made me curious to check out others. He did Adventures of Baron Munchausen, a lot of movies that are well known for being pretty strange, a lot of wacky moments in these movies. Yeah, moments of surreality, for sure, and just kind of a warped vision of life. Well, I also learned that he's the only member of Monty Python born in America. 
So oh, that was interesting. I didn't know he that. later became a British citizen. Mm. I see here he renounced his American citizenship in 2006. So I'm not sure that we should be watching the film of a traitor, but I guess we did. It's all right. We'll balance it out with, uh, I don't know, some <laughs> something super patriotic. I think the consensus is that Brazil is Gilliam's masterpiece. At least that's the critical consensus I've seen. I've never seen Brazil. But this is probably his most popular, although Brazil is also quite popular. So it definitely, I agree, has made me want to see others. And I'm going to hop into the what actually happens in this movie. And get ready, because this is a time travel movie. So Yeah, it's a very plotty movie. Uh, I will try to keep this succinct enough that it doesn't become too rote. Brian, please feel free to chime in with commentary. Uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll see... Uh, <laughs> We'll see how long this takes to get through this. It's a fun one. That's right. So the movie opens. We have a a title card with a transcript of a man in 1990 claiming that a virus will force humans off the face of the earth sometime in 1997, will kill 5 billion people, and, quote, once again, the animals will rule the world. And this is supposedly a schizophrenic who made this prediction back in 1990. Yes, and this is another movie, just like Step Brothers, which begins with an epigraph. So then it jumps to where we see a young boy at an airport witnessing a scene, an, an event of a man getting gunned down and a woman kind of coming after the, the shot man in grief, comforting him and cradling him as he dies. And this is a vision that we will repeatedly see throughout the film gradually with more details and with more familiar faces in the vision. But the, the very first scene we see is, is this vision for the first time. Then we flash cut to James Cole, played by Bruce Willis, waking up in an industrial prison in 2035 and being informed by his cellmate that he has been selected as a volunteer. So just to paint a picture here, this set is wild. It's like a claw machine combined with, I don't know, like a, like a gerbil cage. There's just all these little nested cells. And when they choose a volunteer, this arm comes down and pulls them out of their little receptacle. It's like the little green men in Toy Story. That's exactly what it's like. I hadn't thought about that till now. But the same thing where they're kind of dangling inhumanly and just being pulled up by this godlike machine yeah it's it's bizarre and before cole before james gets brought up there he and his cellmate the one who woke him up speculate about what it means to be a volunteer Uh, what do they do and how come they never seem to return we don't get an answer to this although they have their ideas uh, before we see bruce willis now getting ready to be doing whatever a volunteer is going to do He gets sprayed down and put into a hazmat suit and detoxified before he is kind of launched upward into what we recognize as a city sewer, like kind of the lower levels of this city in this sort of post-apocalyptic world. I have to say that this hazmat suit is incredible, too. I just kept getting more and more struck by how visually arresting all the production design is in this movie because this hazmat suit has all these different pieces and there's clear plastic pieces 
and then there's these opaque, like, rivet pieces that stick it all together, and then there's, like, Christmas lights on the inside, so parts of it are lit up, and it it's bigger than it seems like it needs to be, so he's like a bubble boy. Very interesting to look at. Agreed. There's so much of it, especially in the in 2035, that is just fascinating bit of visual design. Once James is out of the sewer, he he collects insects. He's got this kind of little kit, like a specimen, almost like in in uh, Wally when Eve is going around searching for things, and he he finds various bugs, puts them in this thing, and as he's going around, he he sees several odd things. First of all, he sees various large live animals roaming around outside in the snow, including notably a lion and a grizzly bear. And these are both actual real live animals on camera, or at least they seem to be. (laughs) When I first saw this a couple weeks ago, this resulted in a great exchange between you and me, where I told you that I'm in on any movie or a show where they have a real-life grizzly bear on screen. Bears are just awesome. I love bears. I don't know why I love bears, but I love bears. And so I was really hyped that in the first couple minutes we got to see a live freaking grizzly bear wandering around city streets, and it had me amped for lots of bear action. But sadly, I think this is the last time, or one of the last times, we see grizzly bear or any live animal. The bear comes back later, but it's not live. It's a taxidermy bear. Yeah. But I agree. Major kudos to any movie that uses a real animal. But they're like trying to move away from that now, but I'm in for it. it. You know, if it's done responsibly, I think you can do it, and it's going to look better than any approximation of an animal. Interesting. That's actually kind of a theme of this movie is the role of using animals for the purpose of human consumption in one form or another. But we can hold that thought for a bit. One other thing that James sees is this red bit of graffiti with 12 monkeys written under it. And the graffiti is like this kind of red. uh, It almost looks like one of the monkeys that kind of hang together, like from a Toy Story or when I was a kid, they had those. Yeah, they come out of a barrel of monkeys. That's definitely what I was thinking too. It has the kind of curly Q arms. Exactly. One interesting thing, like repeatedly, we've talked about the visuals. I noticed that there's like frequently these weird shadows in the background that are kind of sinusoidal the same way that uh these monkeys arms are i thought i wonder if that was an intentional visual cue like kind of these weird shadows that uh james is seeing when he's questioning his own sanity along with the the design of this little uh monkey graffiti yeah i gotta watch it again so then james returns back down to the the prison lab area and he's interviewed by some scientists where they recruit him to continue his service volunteering so that he can perhaps receive some relief in his prison sentence. And that he needs to participate in what they call an advanced program. where He's going to be sent back in time to 1996 to figure out what caused the virus so that they can use that information in the future to come up with a cure for the virus. And I forget how much of this is clearly laid out here. It's something that we gradually learn over the the next 15 minutes or so. But part of the the charm of the movie, the first time you see it, is you don't really know exactly what is happening or why, and it's kind of gradually pieced together. So Then all of a sudden, we're no longer... We don't even really see it happen. We're just all of a sudden back in 1990. And it's a, we recognize it as our contemporary society, so not anything that's 
you know, post-apocalyptic at this point. It's it's 1990 as we knew 1990. There's no giant claw machines here. <laughs> exactly. We see a woman, Dr. Catherine Rayleigh, who's played by Madeline Stowe. I don't think I know her from anything, but I thought she did a really good job in this this movie. We see her enter a prison where she's informed that someone's been locked up who is some sort of psychiatric prisoner under some sort of psychological distress. And we see that it is, in fact, James Cole, the Bruce Willis character from 2035. He has traveled to the past and he is acting traumatized and erratically, exactly as you would expect someone schizophrenic to be acting. He's just going nuts. He's foaming at the mouth and writhing around. And man, I thought for sure I had missed a scene. <laughs> like I looked away from my iPad and I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> what happened? He's suddenly here and he's extra crazy. And they don't ever really resolve exactly why in that moment he's quite so crazy. I mean, he kind of uh, rubber bands back and forth just how crazy he is at any given moment in the movie. But here he's at his nuttiest. Yeah, I kind of think it works because once you kind of understand the situation that he's just time traveled for the first time and it's kind of melted his brain. (laughs) I can see why that would cause your brain a bit of whiplash, you know, but... You're definitely right that the, there's a, a razor's edge of James's sanity that's very much played up. And I also agree that the editing is very jarring sometimes where you don't see something you expect to see connecting two things. That is definitely one of the moments where it happens here. So James is admitted to a psychiatric hospital by Dr. Rayleigh where he meets the very twitchy Jeffrey Goins. He's played by Brad Pitt, a pre-megastar fame Brad Pitt. But it was the same year as Seven. So this is, I think, like one of the, along with Seven, the moment that he really started to break out and become like a a major A-list actor. Anyways, Jeffrey Goins gives James a tour of the, the facility he's in, which is a one flew over the cuckoo's nest sort of hospital. One thing we see that is, again, I think a very intentional thematic element is that everyone from the outside seems to have their own mental delusions and their own substitute reality that they're living in the same way that James seemed to, except we're inside James's head. And so what we think we are seeing as viewers is, in fact, the real reality, probably just as much as the people in this institution think that their reality is the the real reality and everybody else's is fake or altered in some way. Yeah. It really made me want to see some of these other movies that they're living. There's a guy who has a soliloquy about being mentally divergent and how his experience is that he's involved in a war on Pluto, similar to like John Carter on Mars. That sounds like an interesting story. (laughs) I want to watch that movie. The sequel to 12 monkeys, maybe. And I just want to shout out, I'm sure we'll circle back to it when we are listing good things, but Brad Pitt's performance is just wild here. He's speaking a mile a minute, and I think he's wearing these weird contacts. I mean, you think of Brad Pitt as, at least I think of Brad Pitt as being a a pretty handsome gentleman, you might say. I'm pretty sure he's one, what, sexiest man alive, 
maybe multiple times, but here he's got these like Roger Rabbit cartoon contacts in that make his eyes buggy, and he's just always off kilter. There's one moment later in the film when we begin to maybe think that Goins has kind of returned to sanity, and then we get like a close-up of his face and pause there for a second, and you get a good look at his eyes, which are not just buggy, but like cross-eyed and you're like oh no no wait he's just as crazy as as always here and i want to point out that uh pitt actually did get nominated for the academy award for best supporting actor i believe it was the only academy award nomination for this movie and he actually won the golden globe for the performance so not alone in thinking it was a good one i I completely agree although i gotta say production design team was snubbed at oscar (laughs) time We then see James interrogated by psychiatrists, and he shares that he knows from his present, which is 2035, that in 1996 and 1997, the majority of the world will be wiped out by a plague. A plague that he's not hoping to stop, but just gather information on. In particular, he's trying to learn more about the Army of the Twelve Monkeys, which I think we can at this point connect to that bit of graffiti we saw. The Army of the Twelve Monkeys is a mysterious group that scientists in the future believe is responsible for for starting the plague. They keep James locked up in the, uh, the psychiatric facility. Clearly none of the doctors believe him, which why would you? And that night, Jeffrey Goins is talking with James. He's, he's going on this rant about germs And the nature of subjectivity and objectivity, kind of dancing around a lot of the themes of the film. And he makes an offer to help James escape. At this moment, Brad Pitt seems especially Tyler Durden-y. The things that he's talking about are like, modern society is terrible, and we need to act out against the corporate powers that be. And we get more of this later on as well uh, once we see him in the outside world but i can kind of see how this may have influenced his choice to or the choice of brad pitt to play tyler durden yeah i agree so jeffrey makes a scene and then we cut to the next day and at some point around here i forget exactly where it is if it was before this or or here james brings up the plague and, and says that a plague could end humanity which Jeffrey seems to think is a great idea. Kind of plants this idea in Jeffrey's head. You know that new sound you're looking for? (laughs) Well, listen to this. At this mental ward the next day, Jeffrey steals a key and gives it to James, who at this point has taken the medicine that the doctors there have given him. He's kind of in a drugged, loopy state. And Jeffrey causes a commotion, which gives James the chance to escape. He, he leaves the ward, and he's trying to find his way out when he's finally caught by the security there, including Dr. Rayleigh. And they move him into restraints, into solitary confinement, completely strapped down in this very, like, creepy and surreal cell. Like, it reminded me of Salieri's Insane Asylum from Amadeus. Or Clockwork Orange, where they have his eyes clawed open and he's like restrained in this machine. I also really liked the scene when James is escaping 
but he's super drugged and he's just falling all over the place. It's this low speed escape that's super tense. And he gets further than you would think. <laughs> Especially because he like crosses paths with some security guards and stuff who act like they're not going to stop him for whatever reason. Either they're, they're used to seeing crazy people escape or perhaps it's their protocol to not try and restrain them by themselves or something. A scene later, the doctors are then informed that James has disappeared and they rush back down there. And sure enough, he's completely gone. And they briefly search the cell where he had been tied up. And the only conclusion they can come to is he escaped through a vent on the ceiling, which is like 25 feet up and is still like six inches across. Yeah. And like still perfectly in place. But we then cut to 2035 where in fact he has returned. He has gone back to the future from there. He's interrogated about his visit to 1990. It's kind of deemed that his trip was a failure but as they're interrogating him, he sees from an archival photo of the 12 Monkeys Army that Jeffrey Goines was there. And so he's somehow involved in this, the other mental patient at the, the asylum. Well, a reason that it was a failure is because the scientists sent him to 1990 when the year they meant to send him to was 1996. So obviously this process is a little <laughs> haphazard. The fact that this process is haphazard is very much highlighted shortly thereafter when they they agree to send him back to let him try again. And they say, all right, this time we're going to get it exactly right. You're going to be right in 1996. And they shoot him back in time. This time we actually see the process, the machine he goes through. It's another bit of cool visual design. But they they send him back and not only is he not in 1996, he's somehow now in the middle of a battle of World War One, He pulled a Snoopy. <laughs> Oddly here, he sees Jose, who was his original cellmate back in 2035. And he's shot in the leg before he kind of time hops again. And all of a sudden now he's back in 1996. Well, actually, at this moment, we don't know that he's returned to 1996, I don't think. What we see is Dr. Rayleigh giving a speech. She's, she's in Baltimore. She's giving a speech about this concept called the Cassandra complex, which basically is comes from Greek mythology, the, the figure Cassandra, who was cursed, that she would speak true prophecies, but would always be deemed crazy. And in fact, this is something that has plagued modern society as well, that those who speak with true foresight about what could happen, perhaps are considered crazy or alarmist in the moment. And she rattles off this list of examples throughout history. And you better believe this is all foreshadowing and we're going to see all these figures pop up. Because just as we saw Jose in World War I, we are gradually becoming aware that it's not just James who is a time traveler, but there's like a growing club. Right, all this kind of interlocked network of people's timelines. At, after her presentation, she's kind of greeting people, signing her book and stuff. And this one guy who comes off as slightly crazy, which is not at all like an immediate reflection of the Cassandra complex. No, he's like an apocalypse fanboy. <laughs> comes to, to uh, speak to Dr. Rayleigh. And I don't think he gives his name in the moment. I'm not sure. But 
we come to learn that he is Dr. Peters. And he approaches her and suggests that what we consider normal life, he says, the, the human motto, the American motto, let's go shopping, that, that they're the crazy ones. And it's really the apocalypticists, the people who see how Earth is being destroyed, and that the doom and gloom is, in fact, what's, what really is going on and should be going on. Those are, those are the smart ones. And uh, Dr. Rayleigh kind of eye rolls this away. And yeah, um, but she leaves the, uh, the throngs who are greeting her and thanking her for her presentation. And she's about to go into her car when she is ambushed by a masked stranger. And this masked stranger forces her into her car, says he has a gun, forces her to drive away, whereupon... This masked man reveals himself to, in fact, be James. And James wants to go to Philadelphia because that's where the virus starts. Well, she obviously still remembers him from six years ago. Right. But she hasn't seen him in six years, of course, when he made his crazy escape from the mental ward. So they get to Philadelphia. And when they get there, they see evidence of the Army of the Twelve Monkeys, particularly that graffiti that James would see in 2035. And a man, like a crazy man on the street, accosts them and says to James that the way they track him is in the teeth. There's a tracker in his teeth, and that's how they know where he is. James seems to take that this is actually a man from 2035 as well. Well, he's heard this guy's voice multiple places. That's right, yeah. So this, this guy has the same voice that is what he has heard when he's been kind of by himself, usually restrained somewhere, he hears this voice. He calls him Old Bob. That voice is now, this man has that exact voice. So as they're wandering around looking for evidence of the 12 monkeys, Dr. Riley has a chance to escape. She decides not to. She decides to stick with James, maybe to, to help him out, help him kind of not do anything that would be dangerous to himself. But it's clearly a conscious decision that she's now kind of a part of his apparent lunacy. They stumble into this building, which is this really bizarre... It's like a theater, and they're kind of at the top level and looking down, and it's just like this den of criminality. I took it to be like a crack den, maybe. And it's almost like they're plunged into a mini version of this apocalyptic world yeah i i read it as a crack den it's like a house that you'd see in the seedy parts of breaking bad or something and they're about to leave when two of the the people here basically attack james and dr rayleigh james manages to fight both of them off killing one of them in the process and he rescues dr rayleigh from being assaulted by one of these two guys after they've escaped they continue to look around and they find the headquarters of the Army of the Twelve Monkeys. And they, they manage to get in and there they learn that Goins started this group, the Twelve Monkeys Army. It's like an environmentalist, radical group. And in fact, Jeffrey Goins is the son of Dr. Goins, a prominent virologist. But they also learn that, according to these people who are at this HQ, that Goins has ended the Twelve Monkeys Army and is now working at his father's lab. We also see, we, we cut to Dr. Goins, we see him in his lab, and we see that Dr. Peters, the weird guy, the apocalyptic guy who had approached Dr. Rayleigh, is one of Dr. Goins's employees. 
At this point, James has sufficient information to trace down an event that Dr. Goins is speaking at, and Jeffrey Goins is in attendance. So James confronts Jeffrey, speaks cryptically about an upcoming event related to the 12 Monkeys Army that James wants more. He doesn't want to stop, but he wants more information on. And this is the moment where the viewer for just a second thinks that perhaps Jeffrey Goins has, in fact, returned to sanity. But we get the aforementioned close-up on Brad Pitt's face with his buggy eye, cross-eyed look, and know that Goins is not all there still. James is speaking about the genesis of the virus at this point, but he's not saying it explicitly to Jeffrey, which will ultimately become an important miscommunication. James and Dr. Rayleigh are continually on the run at this point. And so at one point while they're on the run here, they hear a news story about a boy who disappeared down a well, which James immediately remembers as something that has happened in the past and says, oh, the boy's faking it. He's just hiding in a barn. It's like the balloon boy from a, a while back. But of course, it's getting like beat by beat, minute by minute news coverage and... At this point, the people of 1996 don't know that the boy is fake. Right, exactly. So it's like that James is, knows what's going to happen in the future. And the cops who now are aware that Dr. Rayleigh has disappeared are tracking down Dr. Rayleigh and James. And we get a little bit of a fake out where it looks like James might be killing Dr. Riley. And then we see a news report that a body was found. But then shortly thereafter, we see that James hasn't killed Dr. Rayleigh. He's just locked her in a trunk. But alas, the cops are still on his tail, and they finally corner him and Dr. Rayleigh, and Dr. Rayleigh's telling James to turn himself in, turn himself in. James goes into this creek, and Dr. Rayleigh looks away, and then when she looks back, he's gone again. He's completely disappeared. We cut then back to 2035. James has once again returned to the future. He awakes to one of the more bizarre moments of the entire film with the scientists and doctors from 2035 singing Blueberry Hill, which is a song that James and Dr. Rayleigh had heard while they were on the road, along with What a Wonderful World. And James had gotten all teary-eyed at at Blueberry Hill, while meanwhile Dr. Rayleigh had been like panicking at why is this guy having like an emotional reaction to this 1950s song? And then we see all these scientists from 2035 singing it to him. It's just a very surreal moment. It's also shot with like this weird painting in the background. I don't know if that moment struck you. I love this moment and the scientists in general. Yeah. They have a a surreal tone, certainly, and very comical in amidst all the sinister things in the future world. I don't know. It felt like a Devo music video or something. <laughs> just this twisted vision of the future that makes you laugh at the same time you feel seriously threatened by everything. That's a good comparison. My my comparison was David Lynch, how he can like make these seemingly sweet things seem very dark and strange and foreboding and also make these very sinister things seem kind of just rote and normal. I don't know. Also, it pops up in a couple different scenes. I don't know specifically when. But a lot of the scenes where James is talking to this panel of scientists, they're communicating with him through this television sphere that it's shaped kind of like the torture droid in Star Wars. Like it's this big hovering robot ball. 
but it has little tiny TV screens all over it. And like each one is an individual eyeball <laughs> and it's talking to him. And this thing was mind blowing. Yeah, it's definitely something. Back in 1996, we see Dr. Rayleigh begin to believe that James had been telling the truth, that he maybe he wasn't quite as crazy as she initially thought. First, James's take on what would happen with the boy in the well, that it was a fake and he was just in the barn, comes exactly true. Second, she gets a bizarre report that the bullet that had been in James's leg, which at one point she had actually extracted and nursed, was really a World War I bullet, like an authentic bullet from the 1910s. And at that moment, something clicks for her. So she had frequently said that she thought she recognized James from somewhere, thought she had maybe met him in the past. And then she sees a picture from World War One of one of the people who was in the Cassandra complex speech, who I think we're supposed to recognize as Jose. But in the corner of this picture is James, very clearly Bruce Willis. And for her at that moment, it clicks that James actually was telling the truth about time travel, or at least that's that's her her vision of reality at that point. And, and back in 2035, James convinces the scientists to send him back to 1996. And when he gets back, he immediately finds Dr. Rayleigh, who has kind of gone searching back in Philadelphia for James, thinking that he'll come back to try and fight off the 12 monkey army. Uh, they reconnect. She spray paints something that James had seen in pictures in the future. And they evade the cops. And just before this, actually, Dr. Rayleigh had seen the, the, the man with the voice that James had been hearing. But, she, but he pretends to not know what's happening at all. And again, it's another moment where we're forced to the razor's edge of insanity versus being a prophet. Together, Dr. Riley and James, they sneak away from the cops into a hotel. And in the hotel, they are mistaken as a prostitute and her client. They go up to a room where Dr. Rayleigh confesses to believing now that James is in fact a time traveler, even though he's starting to go the other way. He's starting to think that maybe he's just having visions about everything. Maybe he's actually insane. But their reflections are interrupted when a pimp breaks down the door because it's his territory and she shouldn't be there. They both escape and James takes the pimp's knife and cuts out his front teeth. So now we know he can't be tracked because, again, he believes that the front teeth is where they have the tracking devices from the future. This seemed like a very spur-of-the-moment decision. I gotta say, this affected me. I was not a fan <laughs> of the pulled teeth. I, I don't think you could do that, at least not that fast. But now Bruce Willis has got blood streaming down him, as does the woman, because the pimp backhanded her, so she's got blood streaming from her nose. Yeah, they're making a hasty getaway as they're bleeding profusely. We also see Jeffrey Goins, Brad Pitt's character at this point. It turns out that he has, in fact, not gone straight. He's still running the, the army of the 12 monkeys. And he kidnaps his father, the virologist, as they begin to perpetrate their plan, which we have no reason to believe is anything other than what James suspects, which is that it's the releasing of the virus. At this point, Rayleigh and James are making their getaway, and they stop to hide out at a movie theater. And <laughs> Rayleigh says, blend in to James Cole. 
while James has obviously just removed all his front <laughs> teeth and still they're both covered in blood. And they're here in the middle of this crowd on the street corner. And she says, blend in. <laughs> yeah, they both have blood streaming out of their faces. Maybe kind of hard to blend in at that point. At the, the movie theater, though, they get disguises. James gets a mustache and a wig. Dr. Rayleigh dyes her hair, gets a new outfit, and they plot that they're going to go to the airport. They're going to fly away to Key West, and that'll be their way of avoiding the cops. And then from there, they'll kind of figure out what to do. And so the next morning, we see that the outcome of the 12 Monkeys plot, and we learn that it was not, in fact, to spread a virus, but it was to free animals from the zoo onto the streets of Philadelphia. We get all these shots of of live animals escaping. More real animals. There's a gorilla. <laughs> exactly. I loved it. Yeah, it's great. And it harkens back to the opening scene where Bruce Willis saw the live animals outside, which I took to be as an explanation of why there were in fact like weird animals that would never be in Philadelphia roaming the streets in 2035. Well, they've got the same thing like in I Am Legend from like 2007, where eventually the zoo animals got out in the apocalypse anyway. But yes, I I do agree that that's probably why they're out and about is because of Brad Pitt's actions. So then they arrive at the airport and James, who has learned that they were in fact wrong all along about the 12 monkeys. They're just environmental pranksters. They're not spreading a virus. He leaves a message for the future because in the future they have technology to read old voicemails and tells the truth about what's going on. And as soon as he hangs up and steps away, he sees his old cellmate, Jose, once again. And it it just kind of drives home this, like, all these people living in parallel timelines, how one thing that happens here impacts the future, which then impacts them sending it back into time to where he is now. And kind of this almost butterfly effect. Jose gives James a gun, tells him that he's still got to follow orders. And James wonders, who who should he shoot? Who does he need to shoot with this gun? And then at that instant, Dr. Rayleigh recognizes Dr. Peters, one of the employees of Dr. Gaines, the, the one who had approached her at the speaking event about the Cassandra complex. And he's at the airport in his own disguise, And in fact, it becomes clear he is the one who's going to be responsible for spreading the virus. And so James realizes that it's his destiny to go and shoot and kill Dr. Peters to prevent the spread of the virus. So they charge through security to go after him. Meanwhile, Dr. Peters has these vials. He's letting security guards sniff it, presumably already starting the spread of the virus. James rushes through the security and attempts to shoot Dr. Peters. But he is, in fact, gunned down himself by security, which we knew would happen. We know from the start that he is not he is, his destiny is not to prevent the virus, but to, to find out information about it. Dr. Rayleigh rushes to comfort and cradle James, who's just been shot and is dying. And this whole time we see this from the eyes of a young boy who we now know the, the loop from the beginning has been complete. This is, in fact, a young James from 1990 before he aged up to 2035 James, who would go back to 1996 and be shot, meanwhile having these visions of himself getting shot that have framed the entire movie. I feel like now is a good time to say that I think we both like time travel stories. I know that I have penned a long post on our blog about some different time travel stories that I've enjoyed. 
but a sticking point for us in our discussions has been the issue of predestination time travel. Uh, this is the sort of time travel rules where the time travel can't actually change anything because it's already part of the natural timeline. And you have characters who gradually become aware of their role in the loop. And at different times, they're aware of different amounts of their role in what's going on. Right. I've also heard it described as immutable timeline as opposed to mutable. So like a mutable timeline would be Back to the Future, for example, where the actions that the characters take in the past subsequently change the future. So if they return to the future, things are different because of what they did in the past. Whereas an immutable timeline, as you mentioned, is all about how everything has basically already happened. The timeline is still set. And so anything that happens in the time travel going to the past is something that has in fact occurred in the in the timeline that the characters lived or that the reality lived the first time through before this character went back in time. It's, yeah. It's a little tricky to talk about any kind of time travel movie. <laughs> you kind of got to write it out and study it for a while, and even then you'll probably find holes. Yeah, it's, it's kind of inherently paradoxical one way or the other. But I do want to talk more about that approach to time travel. So before I do that, I'll just wrap up the plot here. We then see, to conclude the movie, that Dr. Peters boarding the plane with his virus, and there he meets a woman who we recognize as a scientist from the future, one of the scientists. And she says that she's in insurance, I think she says. But it just seems to play into this idea that James is just one piece of this very large puzzle to carrying the virus. Although, incidentally, may have actually been the one to plant the idea of the virus in Dr. Peter's brain. Because he told Goins about it, and that trickled up to Goins' father, where Dr. Peters was working. It's kind of uh, interesting and ambiguous in that regard. I was confused about how to interpret the insurance line at the very end of the movie. I was wondering if this scientist is on Peter's side or on James's side. What is she insuring? I was wondering if maybe she was a mole in the future and she's like overseeing the time travel experiments to make sure that it happens this way. And, and maybe it would be a mutable timeline, except she is making sure that the virus happens every time by bodyguarding him on the plane. I don't know. Oh, interesting. I just took it as her being the next agent to go in the past. Although it's odd because all of the other people we've seen go into the past are prisoners, not scientists. Again, I think it's very ambiguous and open to theorizing and interpretation. So, But that wraps up 12 Monkeys. And boy, what a plot that was. There's at least three timelines we're bouncing. I guess four timelines. We have the World War I timeline, 1990 where James is in a mental ward. 1996, where he re-encounters and captures Dr. Rayleigh, and then ultimately fails to prevent the virus from spreading. And then, of course, we have 2035, which is James's present. But also, we have, in 1996, we have young James's present there, too. So it's a simultaneous timeline there. It's, it's a bit of a uh, puzzle box, I would say. Indeed. So I've got a few things that I want to hit before we start 
dissecting what's good and or not so good about this movie. Just a couple of talking points I wanted to yeah, rap about. go for it. So we just talked a little bit about predestination time travel, the fixed loop, the immutable time travel rules. I've generally said that that's not my favorite system because it robs characters of agency, in my mind. If they can't actually affect any different outcome, I don't find that as dramatically fulfilling. If nothing they can do can have any effects and it's always going to happen the same way, it's, it's robbed of drama. So here's my counterpoint to that. To some extent, any story is already a predestination story because we are watching something that is already filmed or reading text that has already been printed. We as consumers of the media don't have actual agency. It's true that the characters within the narrative of it do. But to me, it's just another mechanism of revealing that drama to the consumer, to the reader, to the, the viewer. So the, the artistry and drama of a predestination timeline, a immutable timeline to time travel, is all about a different sort of drama than having the characters be our own surrogates and having them have agency or not agency, because then it's as much about revealing how it all went down, like how these things are connected. So it's about kind of learning those, what actually is happening. I suppose you could tell a version of an immutable timeline story that would just be boring as hell because it would be, you see everything the first time and then you see them go back and then you see everything again. But good immutable timeline stories are all about the viewer not knowing what's going to happen. It's revealed to you. And that's where the the entertainment and the drama comes in is, piecing everything together often at the same times as the character. So it's, it's a sort of a different type of drama for the characters. It's about piecing it all together instead of actually doing things that influence the, the timeline itself. That's a good point. It kind of becomes a mystery story. I, I don't know. At some point in most predestination stories, there's always a moment where, you know, the main character finally realizes, Oh, it was me all along. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, no kidding. I, we knew we knew that that was going to happen because that's what always happens. And sometimes this can become almost like a deus ex machina moment, like in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. At one point, while they're using the time turner, the kids get saved by this figure across the lake who casts like a really powerful Patronus spell. And Harry's trying to figure out who it was that did that. And he kind of in his mind thinks that it was his dad because that's who it looked like over there. But then when they leave the loop again... It's Harry on the other side of the lake, and he saves himself. But, like, to do that requires him to cast an extra powerful Patronus. And he explains, oh, I knew I could do it because I had done it. And it's like, uh, I don't know. I don't know if that flies. Yeah, I have, I have the exact opposite reaction to that ending of Harry Potter. That's one of my favorite Harry Potter books and stories. And I really love the, the way that the theme of time and the relationship between the past and the present is handled. Because on the one hand, we see that in the sense where the past struggles, like Harry's father and his relationship with Snape and Lupin, who are his current teachers, has ripples in the future. But then that's also made much more literal in sci-fi when he actually gets to do the time travel. And we have good reason to think that, or we at least have a sense of reality where we could believe that perhaps maybe Harry's dad is in fact alive because one of the things there is 
the four different members of the Marauders map, I forget what they call themselves, three of them are there. And so there's just the one missing. And when they see someone who appears to be James Potter casting a spell, it's it's not totally implausible. You know, you're, you're definitely right that it's a bit of like a seventh or eighth grade version of that. Like it's not it does it's not quite as much a uh, Rude Goldberg machine as the plot of 12 Monkeys. I, I even think, though, that the what you call the deus ex machina of Harry casting the, the stag, it's like it, it all along was, as he was learning the Patronus, was something that he, he knew he could do if, he, if everything went exactly right. It was never that he couldn't do it, but he just, he had to get his mind in the right place where he really had, was completely focused on it and had his mind clear. And by getting himself in that position, you're right, it is like, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy because he had already seen himself do it, but... I don't know. I think that if you are in middle school and maybe haven't consumed the wide world of time travel literature, it's about as fun and elegant an intro to it because the the rest of the book also does other of the what you call the mystery story stuff where things you see you initially think mean one thing, but then as you relive it again, you learn actually meant something else in in this immutable timeline and it kind of leaves ambiguous whether it's a mutable timeline or an immutable timeline until that moment when he casts the Patronus. So anyways, that was a bit of diversion on uh, the movie we're not even talking about. Oh no, I still want to talk some more about this and we'll probably go on for a little while if you're game. Sure. I just wanted to say that I have some counter arguments of my own to my argument that uh, predestination is no good. There are there are problems with that argument. For instance, as I've thought more about it, I've come to realize that a fluid timeline, one that is is possible to change, arguably becomes a locked-in loop after one time trip anyway. Because, I mean, if you look at, like, Back to the Future, which is, at least for the most part, a timeline that can be changed, we have at the end of the movie, Marty comes back to 1985... And things are still playing out as they did when he was there before. Marty and Doc are still in the parking lot of the mall. Doc still gets shot. Marty still drives away in the time machine and disappears. But this Marty in 1985, the one who has lived the life created for him by the changes made by the Marty who went back to 1955, has lived an entirely different life from the Marty we've been following. He has had successful parents and just a whole different childhood. And would he even still be friends with Doc Brown? What is it that causes the events to play out at least similarly enough that there is still a Marty who leaves in the time machine? You just kind of hit on something that I completely agree with that I find frustrating about time travel movies where you can, in fact change the future aka the present by going back in time because all of the changes there are basically superficial it's like they live in the same house you know it's the same group of people they're just kind of maybe not superficially different but just different enough that like it's still recognizable to to marty well there's just any number of details i think the ones that you talked about are good for me it's why do they live in the same house i think about how i bought my house and I just so happened to be searching for a house at a specific time in my life. And I happened to go to an open house on a day when it was available and make, there were no other offers at the time. And we made that offer. And that's why we lived at that house. If I had waited a week 
maybe I would right now live in a different house. If I'd had different meetings that day or at that time at work, so I couldn't go to that open house, why would I live there? And if you had a different job in a different place, exactly, you would probably live in a different house. So it's like, I don't know, it's like a half-assed butterfly effect. It's like it's not actually tra- tracing in any logical way what the the changes of the past would be. Another thing that I that I have, I mean, I'm not picking on Back to the Future, which I think is in both of our top 10 movies of all time, or at least high up there, because I actually, I think that movie works really well if you're able to suspend certain elements of disbelief. But I do think that movie suffers if you think too much about the time travel, because another one is you kind of have to grapple with, does the change, do the changes that Marty makes or in any time travel movie that the protagonist makes do they then ripple forward to actually impact the character that we've seen? And if so, would they still go back into the past? Well, we do see that it does in some, to some extent ripple to Marty because he's going to not exist anymore if he's not able to get his parents together. So that suggests the changes that happen there do impact him. But if they do impact him, how come he doesn't know about his true present when he's back? Because wouldn't he have ultimately actually lived that reality? It just creates this infinite loop of a paradox that I think you can avoid if you accept an immutable timeline instead, a predestination timeline. That's fair. To bring it back to our actual topic of choice, 12 Monkeys, I did think this movie tackled the predestination time travel from a slightly more compelling angle um, compared to what I'm used to. I thought it was interesting that all along all the future people somehow know that time travel is immutable. Like, from the moment Bruce Willis shows up in the past, he's like, I can't actually change anything. I'm just here to look around and learn what I can learn to help people in the future. Right, because he had, in fact, been there when it happened the first time. So that's why he can... It's it's all a bit of a mindfuck. Right. But this also opened possibilities I had never thought of before. Mainly that the people in a predestination time loop story, they know their past, but they don't know their future. Interesting things can still happen to them if you extend the timeline out the other way. So as we see, they could just keep piling on time travelers just at a later time that we haven't seen yet. So there could still be a bunch of crazy stuff going on. That's actually the conclusion I drew by the final shot of the film is that there is still crazy stuff going on that we haven't yet seen. I don't know. But I do think, I'm actually curious, when did when did you realize exactly how immutable this timeline was and that, in fact, the airport scene was going to be the main character dying? Well, I knew going in that this was a predestination time travel movie, so that wasn't a surprise to me. But as far as the scene that we keep seeing that that's going to be what kills Bruce Willis. I didn't know that was what was going to kill Bruce Willis. I knew that he would be there, one of the figures, whether it be the guy with the gun. I guess he did have a gun, but he was the one who got shot. Also, we keep seeing this dream, and like they might have used a couple different actors or something. Like The dream looks different every time he has it. And it, it may just be that we see more of the actors and, and see clearer face shots because they don't want to give away right away that it is Bruce Willis. 
Um, I knew he was going to be involved. I didn't necessarily know that was what was going to kill him, but I, I knew that was what we were leading to right. was that confrontation. Right. Yeah. I would say the moment that I knew exactly what it was going to be. I agree with you. I knew it was going to be kind of the cr- a crux of the story. I figured it was. But the moment I kind of suspected that the person we saw being killed was Bruce Willis was when they were starting to put on their disguises. And I was like, oh, that's why the guy who died was involved. It's because Bruce Willis is wearing a disguise. And that's why her hair color is different. And she's wearing a dress is because she's putting on this disguise. So that's when it kind of came together for me. But yeah, I don't know. I- I found it just a really satisfying, I use the word puzzle box or like an out of order Rube Goldberg machine. I mean, that to me is one of the good things is the way that you gradually piece the whole story together across these many timelines. One last thing I wanted to go off on kind of a tangent about having never seen this movie before and now to watch it for the first time, it kind of filled in some holes for me and I just saw a bunch of connections to other movies and so if you'll indulge me, I just kind of wanted to ramble about that for two minutes or so. Yeah, let's get to that. Go down that rabbit hole. So obviously I saw parallels to Terminator because that's a movie where somebody is a survivor of an apocalypse in the future and they get sent back in time to change things only to find that they're part of a time loop that has been locked in all along because the this in that movie, the savior or the guy who's coming back to help the savior of the future actually ends up becoming his father. Some parallels there, but uh, some I've already touched on as far as this was the same year that Seven came out with Brad Pitt. That's one that got a spot on my 100 film favorites. Um, Brad Pitt also seeming more than a little like Tyler Durden from Fight Club here. Yeah, definitely. He's delivering a lot of the same screeds, anti-corporate messages, pro-environment, pro-domestic terrorism as a means to meet an end. Like, I mean, they're totally doing the Project Mayhem type stuff that happens in Fight Club. Right. And then you've got Bruce Willis, a year before The Sixth Sense, another 100 film favorites entry. And there's a line when he's running around the city at some point, and he says, All I see is dead people! (laughs) Right, because he knows they're going to die in the virus in the future. But of course, that is the iconic line, or similar to the iconic line from The Sixth Sense. And then I was wondering, Dan, have you ever seen the movie Looper? I have not. So Looper is a sci-fi movie from 2012 that has Bruce Willis, again, coming back from the future. That one is a fun one. We may want to watch it. I have some thoughts about that one, too. Uh, The basic premise is that in the future, it's too hard to cover up crimes. Like if you kill somebody, it's going to leave behind enough forensic evidence that they're going to catch you no matter what. So the solution that gangsters have come up with is that they are going to teleport their bodies that they kill into the past. (laughs) Well, before they're dead, if they need to get rid of somebody, they send them back in time like 30 years where they've established a connection with this group of hitmen called loopers and the loopers do their dirty work for them in the past when it's easier to hide bodies well eventually every looper the last person that they kill is themselves from the future so that they can't rat on the criminal (laughs) gangs i guess that sounds like a wild premise that sounds pretty fun actually but it's got Bruce Willis as 
a time traveler and he comes back from the future and his young self is played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Oh, wow. And so it's the two of them interacting <laughs> in a time travel story. And that one is is pretty crazy. Not to go too far off the rails, but one of the interesting things about that one is if they have your past self tied up somewhere and they start torturing him, the old self starts getting covered with scars to the point that they like one of the old loopers who is supposed to get terminated is off free in the time stream. And so the way they deal with it is they capture the young him and they start cutting off his limbs. <laughs> and so the old guy who's running starts like, like his clothes are hanging off of him because suddenly he doesn't have an arm. And then he like falls over because he a leg disappeared. And then his nose disappears and his face is getting all disfigured. It, it was crazy. And it sounds like a very interesting take on the predestination versus change the future timelines as well. Indeed. And then last thought, last random movie I'm going to try to tie in here is maybe the most clear cut similarity, which is 28 Days Later. Have you seen that one? No. Because that is a zombie movie where what starts the apocalypse is ecological activists freeing lab animals specifically chimpanzees so basically the exact thing that bruce willis is waiting this whole movie to happen and then doesn't happen oh, man. but kind of does because it still involves freeing animals but it doesn't trigger a virus in this movie but in 28 days later that's what causes the apocalypse it's like a, a whole multiverse of time travel movies connected to 12 monkeys or not all time travel but various sci-fi movies that's how i see it yeah that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, a lot of those are ones I want to see. So, any other thoughts before we jump to the good things? I'm ready for some good things tonight. Well, I wanted to open my good things section. I don't even know, again, kind of like your other observations, I don't know if this actually is a good thing, but it's my, my theory that this movie is the ultimate 2020 movie. I think the more you think about it, the more connections you're going to be able to find, just like you and your other sci-fi movies. But So let's think about 2020. Well... There's a rampaging virus which results in an oppressive lockdown that is necessary for the survival of humanity. I think that in itself is a pretty interesting parallel, and that's kind of the thrust of the plot here. But there's a lot of other themes and details on the fringes that made me think of 2020. There's kind of this clash of good scientists, good science, bad scientists, bad science, and obviously we have... Dr. Peters, who's, spread, who's spreading the virus. But in 2020, we have all sorts of discussion about what does it mean to trust science? Can we trust the scientists? Are they political? Oh, but this science, scientist is saying that. Oh, they changed their mind on this. And the whole like moral ambiguity of science to me was very compelling. There's also the, the desperate search for a cure so that people in 2035 can return to normal. And of course, in here in 2020, we're desperate for a vaccine so we can return to our normal life too. Yeah, I'm wondering how long before they roll out the time travel. <laughs> As a means to go back to Wuhan, see the origin. There's also just like an overall sense of conspiracy and fear and just foreboding about everything. And interestingly, related to the immutable timeline discussion, the characters have a whole lot of, they have a, they have a lack of agency in a very modern world. 
they just can't really control the fate of the world. They're like locked out from changing it. And they're in cells even quite literally quite frequently. And I think this is a, uh, a good parallel to how a lot of people in 2020 just feel like they're locked up in a cage and can't change anything about the world out there. There's also to your point of the, the screens with like the eyeballs of, of watching each other. Just a lot of the people's existence in 12 monkeys is filtered through some sort of like semi presence, like not entirely there. It's some sort of reality that they're attending by a virtual proxy of sort. Now for, for Bruce Willis, it's via time travel, not like a zoom chat, but it still felt like we're only partially connected to our reality the same way we are in 2020. There were lots of other little subplots that I found connected to 2020 in a compelling way. There was a the threat about the fake news of the boy down the well and how the news had it wrong. There was cities run amok with chaos, like when they get into the crack den. And there's a whole lot of like cops and security guards being the oppressors of progress and safety. Like at the end, when Bruce Willis is trying to chase down the guy who spreads the virus, he gets shot by security and police who are ostensibly there to protect people when in fact they do the exact opposite, which is very much a theme of 2020, I would say. So the more I thought about it, I'm sure I'll, I could think about it more and find even more, but this movie just kind of haunted me as, as a film of the present, even though we're actually not quite equidistant between 1996 and 2035. You know, we're somewhere in between. I agree, though. It did feel timely more so than I expected. <laughs> uh, even like the outbreak day when everybody's at the airport, when Bruce Willis is like, oh, I remember this. The death started a week later. I think he says it's like December 7th or something. It was like within a few days of when we both watched the movie. Yeah, and it's, I think, parallels our experience in 2020, how we all kind of remember the last couple days before everything got locked down. And they're kind of like contained in carbonite in our brain about the last vestiges of reality before everything went bad, when everything went dark. Oh, man. I feel you on that one. Just by chance, I shaved completely on March 11th. Oh, end of an era. That's right. And then I'm still... I've, I've trimmed it. I trimmed it at day 200 of lockdown. <laughs> but I've still got my, my beard from day one. So that's my overarching theory. This is the 2020 movie. That's one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it. Also, as you pointed out, happens in December, so it must be a Christmas movie. So we got that going. <laughs> We've got uh, profits, uh, <laughs> issues of profits in the media to kind of throw back to network too. Oh, good call. Yeah. For me, another good thing, we've already talked a lot about it, so I'm not going to go into it anymore. But I just overall, I can't think of a better example of making the timeline where you just put one piece together at a time in, in time travel stories. Like this one to me is the most Rube Goldbergian plot there is, and I, I really loved it. It's it's just fun to watch and piece it all together. And it's cool to see details that interlock in the different timelines. Like you see one bit of graffiti in 2035, but also in 1990, but then also 1996. And you see this statue here and there, and you know that it's this thing is there because this happened at the same time that this happened there. And you see more and more of those in the movie. I definitely noticed even more 
this uh, second time as I went through it to take notes than I did the first time I watched it a couple weeks ago. Another thing that you mentioned, and I want to expand on a little, is the visuals and the the information and style communicated via just visual design is really impressive. You talked about the the way the future looks, and I completely agree with that. Another thing I wanted to call out is there's a lot of use of visual motifs throughout the film. You see monkeys playing a lot of different roles. Obviously, they're the army of the 12 monkeys, but a monkey is also involved in the rescue of the boy. It almost feels like Bruce Willis is himself just a monkey, like being sent into some otherworldly place to collect information the same way that the monkey is sent down the well. Exactly. It's all about experimentation on beings trapped in cages. There's a lot of these things where you see commonalities pop up in bits and pieces all throughout. There's movies that people watch on the screens that like comment humorously on time travel and animals and just all kinds of little little asides that are happening in the background and stories unfolding off to the side that add to the world. And Agreed, yeah. Every frame is visually interesting. I mean, not just visually. There's just things to unpack in every moment in this movie. Right. Another motif I really liked is the use of nudity, like how he's always stripped down. I like I like some use of nudity, too. Oh, yeah. Especially Bruce Willis in his prime. <laughs> Uh, but his the clash of like him being this kind of raw human force against whatever the the modern structure that's holding him down at the time, whether it's his post-apocalyptic prison or it's the, the cops chasing after him or it's the mental ward. I don't know. It's like a very stark visual image. And also just the clash of animals and their role in society, like the way that animals and society seem to be opposed to each other and how that comes to a head in the very conclusion with the Army of the Twelve Monkeys stunt. I also mentioned already that I found moments that reminded me of David Lynch. We, I don't know. I don't think we've watched any of his films for this podcast. I would definitely like to at some point. But one thing that David Lynch is really obsessed with is like the blurry edges of identity and how we sometimes like match different versions of ourselves and match each other in different ways. And you definitely see that here. I don't know if Gilliam was directly inspired by David Lynch or perhaps even vice versa, but just the way that Bruce Willis transformed into the person that he had the vision of and and was just himself in different times and kind of kept changing who he was and exactly how he felt about himself and stuff. Very David Lynch, as was were the moments where the wholesome kind of warped into something deranged, like the the Blueberry Hill. So I really like that kind of strangeness. It really worked for me. I agree. I especially liked the scientists. Yeah. They were a big favorite of mine. They had this comic surrealism. They just lended to a tone <laughs> that is a mix of sinister comic and, like I said, Devo-style wackiness. Right. Agreed. Another thing I liked that was very thematically relevant is the, and I've mentioned this already, it's like a, a fine line, a razor's edge between the characters being clinically insane and like living in their modern society. And I thought we, we get this as the viewer a little bit where the jarring time jumps make it tough for us to know where or when we are at first, especially when we're from the perspective of James. It's like kind of giving the viewer a sort of insanity 
But also when you start to look at the different characters themselves, they all have their own ways that they are kind of living their deluded lives. In some way, it almost seems like the ostensibly the crazy character, the central character, Bruce Willis, is maybe the most buttoned down and sane. We have Dr. Rayleigh, who basically comes to believe that this schizophrenic is in fact telling the future. I mean, we as viewers believe that too, but if you think about it from an outside perspective, that's pretty insane. We have Brad Pitt, who's clearly mentally unstable, Jeffrey Gaines. He has this crazy plot to let animals loose in the city of Philadelphia. He has these like these crazy ideas about what it means to live in a modern society. And I think at one point he says his dad is God or something like that. I can't remember. Yeah, I was surprised that his father actually turned out to be somebody <laughs> uh, with, I guess, enough influence to spring him from the asylum at some point. Or, I don't know, he, he may have been on a brief program like a McMurphy type thing. or I wasn't really sure. But yes, and then definitely Brad Pitt is deranged in this film. And we have Dr. Peters, who is crazy in his own way because he believes that the way to save the Earth is, is to kill 90% of the human population or however much. I don't know. Everybody kind of ends up seeming insane with the theme being that maybe it's just modern life that makes us insane. It also is interesting to see Brad Pitt character occasionally jump into like his crazed predator mode. Is that uh, Bruce Willis? Yeah. Sorry, what did I say? Brad Pitt? I think you might have said Brad Pitt. Uh, yeah, Bruce Willis. That is James. There's a couple of moments where it seems like he's about to maybe be a physical or sexual predator towards Dr. Rayleigh. And how he also, you know, is so quick to attack people and violently kill them even. Just really interesting character development in line with the themes. So, On that note, I actually think the acting in general is really fantastic. I didn't have any weak points on the acting. I thought everybody fit their role perfectly. I think Brad Pitt is the standout in terms of just like energy, but I liked everyone. I liked Bruce Willis, Madeline Stowe as uh, Dr. Rayleigh. Christopher Plummer has a fairly small role as uh, Brad Pitt's dad. Yeah, I agree. Strong performances across the board. There are a lot of people giving realistic performances of very surrealistic actions thing the things they have to do are pretty out there and they carry it well the kind of the last thing on my list that i wanted to praise is i really enjoyed james's character development throughout the movie and particularly the gradual unfolding of his relationship with dr rayleigh and how they eventually come on the same wavelength and how it does blossom as romantic a little bit but mostly it's just like these two characters converging on a reality eventually and it's like a it's a gives us a character to latch onto. I, I liked it one more other movie parallel to point out bruce willis's last name of his character in this movie is cole c-o-l-e and that's the name of the boy in the sixth sense oh man wild uh some some good things i wanted to shout out beyond what's been said so far I just really can't say enough about the visual design of this movie. Everything is interesting to look at. I would really like to have been able to walk around one of these sets, especially the stuff set in the future, because there's all these crazy gadgets, and it just has a vibe that I haven't really seen in a movie before, and makes me really interested to check out some of these other Gilliam films that I've heard about being visually compelling like Baron Munchausen and Brazil. And now I definitely want to check them out. The TV sphere, I really, really dug that. 
I want to like get a screen capture and make <laughs> it the desktop of my computer. And I also just appreciated the big variety of settings we get to see in this movie. We have a, an act that takes place in an asylum. The scenes in the future in the dungeons and a Breaking Bad style crack den and surprise you get a scene of World War One where they're in the <laughs> French trenches. And then there's even like a country club where Goyne Sr. is making his speech and we see the appearance of seemingly buttoned down Brad Pitt, but he still has the crazy eyes. It's like they didn't hold themselves back in terms of the locations they were going to depict in this movie. If they thought it would suit the story, they were going to trek down that location and make it a reality. One thing I wanted to shout out actually is I think it's cool that the movie was actually shot in Baltimore and Philadelphia. It's not just a soundstage. It's uh, they actually went to those cities. So it adds to the immersion, I suppose. Man, real cities, real animals. That's the <laughs> way to make a movie. This is a co- movie, of course, is the epitome of realism. I also appreciated the haphazard nature of the time travel <laughs> and how people are always voiping in and out all over the place to the point that they're spotting each other and becoming like a secret society. They're like giving each other the high sign. One that we haven't even talked about, uh, he gets mentioned in Rayleigh's rally. She talks about this guy who popped up in the Middle Ages and was talking about the plague. And she's like, and the people thought he might have been talking about the Black Plague. Uh, but you actually see him as a street corner preacher in 1996 not seemingly doing anything related to the mission, but he sees Bruce Willis. He's like, oh, hey. <laughs> wow. Oh, I didn't make that connection. That's good. It's He's he's reading the same spiel that she quotes in her book, mm. where it's like, and the fires came down from on high. That's good, yeah. He's Word for word, he's saying the same thing. And then, yeah, he, he gives some greeting to Bruce Willis, who may not even put it together himself. Did you have any other good things, or are you ready to switch to not-so-good things? I am, okay. ready to uh, dive into the darker side. So let's talk about a couple of not-so-good things in this film. I actually don't have too many, to be honest. I really like this movie. One question I kind of wanted to ask myself and get an answer on as I watched this time is, is the plot too much of a puzzle? It, would it be described as confusing for the sake of confusing and just too clever for its own good? And also... Is it perhaps anticlimactic to learn that the 12 monkeys are not, in fact, the source of this great conspiracy, but are just pranksters? Those were some questions I asked myself as I was watching. I didn't really get a good answer. I still really enjoyed it. I don't think it's too much of a puzzle. I like this a movie that makes me think exactly this amount. I think if it tried to get me to think too much more, I might not like it. But for me, the fact that it was able to pull off that puzzle while still being immensely entertaining was a huge success in its favor. So... I ultimately don't regard the complexity of its plot as a not-so-good thing, although I can see why people would complain, oh, that's just too confusing and too weird of a movie. I don't know. I don't have that many ill things to say about this film either. When Dan presented this movie, he kind of set it up as one we might fight over. At least that's the way I perceived (laughs) it. Based on our previous discussion of time travel structures in movies. 
And I actually, maybe partially because of that setup, I ended up enjoying it quite a bit more than I expected. I lowered the expectations for you. <laughs> That's right. I, I had my guard up and I was disarmed. I was charmed. Um, although I will say one shortcoming for me is I was still not completely satisfied by the ending. I don't know. Definitely you become aware that we're leading towards where we're going to experience that Bruce Willis scene. It's all going to come to a head there. And any time where just the big climax is telegraphed so much, I I tend not to enjoy quite as much. Yeah, I I kind of agree with that. I think it would have been cool if there had been one extra twist that we hadn't yet seen. Because there wasn't really. Like, Mm -hmm. we expected him to die and then he died. So I don't know. Or at least I did as a viewer. Also, I've said it, but I... I'm a little torn on how to interpret the scientist's line at the very end about working in insurance. Um, but as we talked about it, I've kind of come around on that way of ending the movie because it does seem like it opens up some possibilities that the story is not over. I do think you raise a good point, though, there that that this movie strives so hard to like explain everything, like every action and its subsequent subsequent consequence that the moments where it hints on things, but doesn't actually get to pay off on it. So there is that one of the woman on the plane where you don't really know exactly what's going on with her. But the one that really bugged me was the voice that kept calling him old Bob. We do see that matching the man on the street, but we don't really get explanations of how he was continually hearing that voice. And I was hoping that that was going to have a little bit more of a clearer resolution than it did. Yeah, I thought he was going to find out somehow that that was a time traveler, which is the conclusion he came to, but we don't hear that from anybody else. No other time travelers say that, and we get the moment where he hacks out his own teeth on the advice of the homeless dude, but when we see another time traveler, when Jose comes back at the very end, he says, why'd you, ch- why'd you chop out your teeth, man? <laughs> Yeah. And so I don't know if that actually affected anything or not. Presumably not, because Jose is able to find him right away. That's true. It's almost almost suggesting that that man was never a time traveler. It's very unclear. The last thing that I would say that ultimately strikes me as a maybe not so good thing is I watched it this time and I felt it was maybe just a hair too cold. It's just really oppressively dire about his theme about modernity oppressing us being the doom of us all, that prevents it from being an all-time favorite for me. Um, That said, it's a pretty minor issue because I still really enjoy it the whole time I watch it. And yeah, this is a good one. Did you have any other things you wanted to add? Last thing, I'll just reiterate that I didn't like the teeth. That (laughs) made me really squeamish. That was pretty gross. That was almost like (laughs) Saw-level... Sorry to dwell on the teeth, but just the... If you haven't seen the movie, the way it's revealed is he just goes into a back room. There there might be a sound effect. And then like five seconds later, he comes out and he's got all his front teeth in his hand. And blood from his mouth. Yeah. Wait, wait a minute. How, <laughs> how did you even do that? This is terrible and also confusing. <laughs> uh, you ready to jump to our signature section? I am. So up next, we're going to answer, is it good? where we each rate the movie on an eight-point scale of goodness, from very not good to tour day good. The guest goes first. Brian, what would you say? Is 12 Monkeys good? I thought 12 Monkeys was really, really good. 
I am going to land at a 7 out of 8, which we have labeled exceptionally good. I'm definitely going to watch this one again, probably soon. I really liked looking at it and thinking about it. It was clear that a lot of craft went into this movie from everybody involved. The actors and the designers and the director. And just all the planning that went into putting things in the frame. And picking out the movie clips and radio clips that you would see in here. There's this moment where there's like a big, weird angel statue getting lifted by a crane. And it was after just... Well, this is a pretty long movie, and this is pretty late into the movie. But it's like after two hours of just weirdness, we linger on this shot of a crane lifting a big, colorful angel statue. And I don't know what it was supposed to mean. It didn't seem to have any significance to the story, but I was glad it was there. I could be wrong. I think that angel might have been seen in 2035 when he is first a volunteer going around Philadelphia. I would totally believe it. It's also definitely like a symbolic element too. I don't know. There's probably a lot of ways you can break that one down. But yeah, there's lots of stuff like that. So then it comes to me. I flip-flopped about five times, and I think we're about to have our first ever in the goods history. I'm going to give this a very good. I, I was on the fence between exceptionally good and very good, and the re reason that this is a first is because the guest is giving it a higher score than the host, which I do not think has happened. Whoa, I hadn't even thought about that. I think you're right. We've, we've had ties, but never the, the guest giving a higher score, I'm pretty sure. I felt myself just slightly separated from it, from the coldness perspective, but I really admire and love the storytelling, the characters, the way it unfolds. So I'm kind of right on the fence of a 6 out of 8 or a 7 out of 8, and I'm just ultimately going to say 6 out of 8 this time. And so history is made. The, the guests liked the movie more than the host did. Yeah, uh, thank you for the wreck. <laughs> but I do love this movie, and I am going to watch it again for sure myself, so... Well, this has been fun. Now is when we're going to give some parting thoughts. Brian, is there anything you've been watching, doing, thinking about unrelated to this movie the past week? Well, the number one thing I want to share is I found out today that the McRib is back. So keep your eyes out at your local McDonald's because it's McRib season. What about you, Dan? What have you been experiencing the last couple of days other than editing for our podcast? <laughs> I've had a busy week, to be honest. Not too much has been on my mind. I wanted to share one movie I saw that was pretty fascinating. I don't know if I'll ever recommend it or if you've seen it, but I watched the documentary called Feels Good Man, which is about the meme cartoon character Pepe the Frog and the whole origin story of that. Uh, it was actually originated from a web cartoon from the late 90s or early 2000s and eventually morphed into this widespread meme that was then co-opted by the alt-right, racists, lots of people like that. And just kind of tracing that history, some of the weirder subcultures that have come out of Pepe the Frog. And lastly, the original artist's attempt to kind of regain control of his character and, and the image that he cre created so long ago after it's kind of spun out of control and into such dark places. So... Not a masterpiece, but very fascinating. And I would say it actually does verge into masterpiece territory when it's digging down into the weirder subcultures 
how like there's this sort of trading card cryptocurrency called rare pepes and this guy who drives around a lamborghini it was like stranger than fiction man it was pretty wild so whoa i've heard a little bit about that one but i've definitely have not seen it. it's worth a watch i I would probably give it a very good or a good uh on the scale I, i enjoyed it a lot yeah but that's all i got you know uh go check out our good logo it's been there for a week now. Oh, yes. It's it's sharp. I'm a fan. This was a concept I came up with <laughs> in the early days when this was just going to be a couple entries on the blog. The guy with the shady trench coat with the film accoutrement tucked away. And Dan uh, commissioned somebody <laughs> on Fiverr or something. And it looks pretty good. It's slick. Yeah. I think next stop is a, a actual theme song for us so we don't have to use... Creative Commons uh, generic music, but I, I, I like our, our current song, but I'm, I'm looking forward to having our own real theme song. So maybe in the next several months, you will hear that from us. So Brian, what are you going to have us discuss next week? So this is something of a random pick. I've cycled through a couple different reasonings behind the films I've selected so far on our podcast. A lot of them have been movies that I have seen and enjoyed a lot and wanted to share. And then a couple have been ones that are kind of well-regarded, but I had not seen. And I wanted to experience for the first time to kind of fill in a gap in my knowledge. But now we come to a third category, which is movies that I've always wanted to see even after they came out and I heard bad things about them. Like, the trailer intrigued me a lot, and then it came out, and the reviews were bad, so I never made it out to the theater, and I have never rented it, but I've always wondered. With that said, I think my next pick ties in fairly well to 12 Monkeys, because it is a love story that involves time travel, and it is called Kate and Leopold. Have you heard about this one at all? No, I'm looking forward to it. It is a 2001 romantic comedy where Hugh Jackman plays a nobleman from the 1700s who comes to the present of presumably 2001 and falls in love with a modern woman. Cool. I'm a big I'm a big uh, Hugh Jackman fan. Uh, so pretty much just on that alone, I'm curious. Oh, time travel too. I mean, how can you go wrong when you got Hugh Jackman and time travel? (laughs) I will swallow a romantic comedy for that. Gotcha. All right. Well, I'll give it a go. You know I love me a good love story. I'm a sap, so I'll give it a try. Maybe I can even get my wife to watch this one with me. Yep, I'm curious to see. I I know very little about it. Um, I think it'll be fun. Well, that wraps up another episode of The Goods. Thanks for watching 12 Monkeys 1995 with me. It was a blast. Look forward to speaking with you next week. Listeners, thanks as always for joining us. And have a great week. Talk to you next time.